This is Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Ben, and Danielle for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. Episode 20, Dinosaur Island. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Gilmore, the designer behind Dead of Winter, Mental Blocks, Wasteland Express Delivery Service, Kids on Bikes, Dinosaur Island, and so many other games and expansions. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks Thank for, for being here. Yeah, huh? Uh, the first thing that we always like to ask our guests, and always one of my favorite questions, is for you to just talk a little bit about yourself uh, to the listeners, telling yourself, uh, telling them who you are and how you got into the game design community. Oh, um, that's a great question. So I have been designing for I think probably eleven years now, maybe a little bit more. Um, it's hard to keep track sometimes. I got into designing games because I really felt um, creatively stifled at my job. I was doing industrial robotics and you know programming, which was fun, but I missed making things because you know I grew up in high school doing art and um, creative things. So I wanted to get back into it, and I was uh, getting back into modern board gaming. So I started with tinkering with uh, like making my own version of Werewolf and doing some fan content for a few things. And then um, I decided to start uh, designing games. My first game that not my first game I designed, but the first game I felt good showing to other people was um, Pocket Dungeon, which was a print and play game uh, that I just designed um it's disguised as a to-do list and you use a post-it notepad to randomize numbers because i wanted a game that i could play during meetings and stuff at work and not get caught oh my god Um, yeah so it's like a procedurally generated dungeon crawler so like a roguelike game um but just on a single sheet of paper and a post-it note so that and that got nominated for a golden geek award um and kind of just spurred me on to keep going and I was actually probably about two months away from releasing Dead of Winter as a free print and play game um, when I met Isaac and we started talking about working together on it. Wow. So that was almost a free print and play? Yeah. Yeah. I almost released it just as a print and play game on BGG because I was just doing it to satisfy that creative need. I didn't have any interest in being a published designer. Wow, that's so interesting. When did that interest change where you're like, yeah, this is what I want to do? Um, it didn't for a while. I didn't think it was going to be a full-time sustainable thing until um, until Dead of Winter really kept its momentum up. Um, and I didn't even really make that decision. The company I was working for found out that I had significant income outside of them and they fired me. Um, I don't know why they didn't ever give me a really good reason. Um, they thought maybe I was going to like part ways bad or sabotage things before I left. Who knows? But that's so weird, especially uh, if it's not a similar industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I wasn't working on it at work. You know, I worked on it in my spare time, but Ohio's an at will employment state, so they can do whatever they want. But it gave me the, the kick of my pants to try you know, doing it full time. So I took the jump. That's impressive. That has always scared me about freelancing. I've always done it on the side, but I've never committed to doing it full time. I really love those benefits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was right. 
um, I, I think the Affordable Health Care Act got passed the year that I went full time. So it was good timing because it was a decent program at first. So I could afford, you know, insurance for my family and stuff and, um, you know, provide for them. All right. So um, I wish we had a better system to make it easier for people to go full time and not you know have to worry about it. But maybe someday. Well, so, John, we've met a couple times and uh, yeah. the kind of running joke, at least about you as a designer, is that you're always on the cusp of some new trend that comes out or something like that <laughs> in, in uh, popular media, pop culture. So, you know, with Dead of Winter uh, coming out maybe before The Walking Dead. And then you have uh, our main game that we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, Dinosaur Island, which is kind of, you know, just breaching, I guess, the surge of Jurassic World and everything like that. So could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, how you came to design this game, regardless of the timing, I suppose? Well, um, so both... Both games kind of came from my love of the source material, Dead of Winter especially. Um, you know, I grew up um, heavily enthralled with zombie media, George Romero, Fulci, the Italian, you know, zombie movies, um, really anything, Max Brooks. And I felt like while there were a lot of zombie games on the market, none of them did what I wanted them to. They all focused on different aspects of it. And I wanted something that really um, represented the human side of things. Right. Um, and with Dinosaur Island, it actually started out as a joke between Brian Lewis and I. Um, we were just starting to collaborate because he lived, uh, he lives nearby just a couple hours away. And I had known him for a few years and we decided to work on some projects together. And he was out walking through the city he lives in and he saw a sign that said dinosaur island and he's like well let's just design that game and then you know we start talking about our love of jurassic park and things like that so we thought how how could we capture that experience and do something different than an actual jurassic park game would because a lot of people said well why didn't you just try to get the ip and while a publisher could have i think you know ips come with a lot of restrictions and we wanted to make a game that did some wattier things, especially with the, you know, people getting eaten and things like that. They probably yeah. wouldn't let us do. So <laughs> True. It's also with the IPs. The publishers have to kind of reinstate and keep paying to keep it, which mm-hmm. becomes a hassle if you want to keep reprinting. Because, I mean, this game is clearly still selling. It sells out. Yeah. Yeah. Both, uh, both games have been in, in – both games are pretty much evergreen at this point. So um, I've been really lucky. And – I wish there was a formula for it. I wish I knew the best way. I just, I have a knack for kind of anticipating the zeitgeist a little bit. I don't know if it's because I really like keeping up with trends. With Dinosaur Island specifically, um, I really looked at the boom in gaming that was happening while we were designing it. Because two years prior, Splendor had come out and tabletop with Will Wheaton and there was this huge boom in the industry of people coming in and playing these gateway games and just discovering the hobby that we all enjoyed. So I thought, and Brian and I were talking, and and we really felt like if they followed the same trajectory that we kind of did, 
a couple of years in, they were going to start looking for like medium weight work replacement games. So we really wanted to target that specifically with Dinosaur Island and have it be like a really nice approachable midway game that people that were just starting to grow in the hobby could pick up. And it was at a time when things were going, people were still making very, very gateway games and still focusing on that. So we, th- we kind of went the other direction. That's so interesting. And then for anyone who has not played Dinosaur Island, would you mind walking us through the gameplay? Uh, sure. So it really um, kind of follows what you would do if you were starting up a dinosaur theme park. It, it has elements of worker placement um, in a couple different ways. You have a private worker placement board. Um, where you're doing lab research. There's public worker placement where you're claiming these dice um, that represent DNA and the other resources that you can get. You combine DNA to make dinosaurs and you expand your theme park with rides, um, dinosaur pens, you know, build lots of dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> we actually had, um, during playtesting, we had a player figure out that they could win the game without building any dinosaurs. So what? we had to, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, nice. it's kind of, that happened in Viticulture too, uh-huh, when that right. first came yep. out. Yep. <laughs> um, so we, we were hyper aware of that and we're like, Oh no, you have to build dinosaurs in this game. That's not, not okay to not do that. Yeah. That'd be a little bit disappointing to like have a zoo tycoon situation where you just made these cool landscapes and cages with no actual animal <laughs> and the kids like, <laughs> looking around trying to find it and all they see is a little lake and a drop of a leaf <laughs> or something. Ugh. Yeah, and we really we want to capture that arc of like starting off with a really crappy theme park, and then having it grow each round and see more and more people come up. So we, you know, did little things like when you when you attract people because of the excitement level of your park, they kind of line up at the gate and then come in and have fun, and then you place them in your park. Um, so we really focused on the experience of what we wanted in a park building game, and then matching that with the chaos of dinosaurs breaking out and you know eating some people too always a plus yeah i think <laughs> john you are the zeitgeist it's basically what it comes down to but <laughs> <laughs> apart from that uh it sounds too that dinosaur island was pretty established or fleshed out even from the beginning is there anything that you can share with us about what changed uh, didn't make it kind of into the base game uh, through playtesting and development mm-hmm um, I mean, there's a couple really good things in there. One was, I remember distinctly at one point, um, we had pitched it to Zev. I believe he was still with uh, Z-Man and hadn't start, went to WizKids yet. And um, he passed on it, and he gave us the feedback that there was just too much stuff. And we went back, and we eliminated almost 200 components from the game. Whoa. Oh, my God. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, it's How it's much already going to cost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was still pretty early in designing, so I didn't think about those kind of things as much as I do now. Sure, I didn't, yeah. you know, um, I didn't have a good sense of like what a game would cost when I made it, and we learned a lot of tricks, like um, you know, making the DNA tracking on little traps instead of having a bunch of tokens that you're collecting for the resources. Um, thin, you know, efficient ways that we could condense down the de- design and make it easier for players to compartmentalize the information and make it really easy uh, to see. The other thing um, that we eliminated, and it, it really upset a lot of people when they found out afterwards, and they felt like, 
I have I have a love hate relationship because a lot of times you play an expansion for a game, and you feel like oh this stuff was like just saved for an expansion. Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily bad, but sometimes it feels a little bit weird, especially with like Kickstarter games. Um, but when we did the expansion, we added in um, blueprints because there wasn't any spatial element to how your park was built. You could really just put stuff anywhere as long as it fit. And in playtesting, we had that. We had adjacency bonuses for things. We had lots of like little bits that you know made that park building puzzly. But it was just too much cognitive load for players. Sure. Um, it was just a step too far. So we, we cut it out. And when we um, started working on the expansion, we revisited the idea and thought of a completely different way to do it that was way more elegant. Um, and we added it back in and people were like, well, that should have been there the whole time. But it, it didn't really work. So, you know, we needed the year, the, you know, the year and a half of experience and player feedback and you know, playing the finished game ourselves to really figure that out. That's right, yeah. Since this is a medium weight game, you have quite a few different elements and kind of phases, which I like that it actually has it typed out like phase one, phase two into your game. How did you begin to design these phases? Did you start with just like one or the general concept of all of them? Like, could you take us through that? Mm, yeah, so um, usually when I start working on a project and and it's almost always co-designed because i i prefer to co-design i usually sit down with my co-designers and we talk about what we want the experience to be and in this case we really just sat down and like from the very start those phases started to emerge because they just kind of make sense of the things that you would do and then we started to play around with the idea of you know, making each board its own separate phase. So you could really just move from board to board. And even though there are these, you know, distinct phases that operate very differently, it's easy to, um, again, for the players to compartmentalize that data and condense it down and say, okay, now we're doing the research phase. So we're going to replace our, you know, researchers on the dice. And then we go to, you know, the bidding phase where we buy stuff. So we're doing these actions and then we go to the worker placement um in the the lab um phase so i always try to think what experience are we trying to model for the players and how can we best model that and build out from there um and i try to always do it in a way that the actions are because a lot of designers will say they're experience first or mechanics first. Um, sure. I, I always like to think of myself as an experience first designer because I feel like those, for me, those two things have to mesh really well. And I can't do just one or the other. So I want, I want all the mechanics to feel really informed by the um, experience that the players are having. And I, I think it helps make games easier for the players to remember what they're doing when they can just think about the actions in a mechanical way or in a, in a what do I want to do way rather than a how does this mechanic work. No, that definitely makes sense. So then when you're playtesting with that in mind, what do you tend to like take out of the playtest or ask as like go-to questions? Um, a, lot, a lot of my co-designers hate when I ask questions during playtesting because I really 
laser focus on the negative portions of things. Um, and I always ask players, like, what didn't they like? What didn't make sense about the game? And, you know, what what didn't fit the experience? Um, it is hard for a lot of people um, with a prototype, especially, you know, a very... I make, I make very, very ugly prototypes on purpose. Um, because I, I don't... I'm a big proponent of fail faster. So the time that I spend on graphic design or making the game look good is not game time I'm spending on reiterating and making the game better. So it does make it hard for some players to get the experience with all those components there. But if the thing I look for is if the players can get the experience without the those things there, I know that the finished product will get the experience across with the extra layers on top of, you know, good art, good graphic design, um, and all the things that I'm missing out on. So I usually ask very broad experiential questions like, you know, what did you feel like when you were doing this? Did it feel like you were doing the thing? And even at very, very early stages, because a lot of times I'll just play test small portions of a game at the earliest stages. There may not even be an end game. And I think with Dinosaur Island specifically, like our first five or six play tests, we didn't even have victory points or anything else. It was just here's the mechanics, let's play this for a few turns and see what happens. I feel like I come up with my scoring on my games pretty late into the design, so I could see how that would work out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty rare that I have the end game goal in mind when I'm designing. Makes sense, you're about the journey. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that does make it extra hard for some players. Some Some people <laughs> really need a why am I doing this? And you can't just say, well, pretend there's a reason. Yeah, that's super interesting and cool that it's kind of a spaghetti at the wall approach in a sense, but also a bit of like puzzle piecing things together. I mean, for a lot of players, I think two of their favorite parts are the scientists having the different values for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like when you're resolving them and all that good stuff. And then there's also the uh, hooligans trying to sneak into the park. <laughs> and I'd just be, yeah, you know, love to get some insight into kind of where those ideas came from, maybe uh, between you and Brian, kind of who put that to the table, who threw that spaghetti against the wall and, uh, you know, gave it a try during the playtesting oh, I, I would have no idea. It's very rare that we ever, ever you know, any of us keep track of whose idea what yeah, part yeah. was. That's a good thing, too. Um. But it came from us discussing that we really liked the potential of different workers. Um, and we wanted, because there were kind of two different worker placement phases in the game, we wanted the workers to work differently between them. Um, so the, the research phase is a little bit of inspiration from Belfort um, by Sen and Jay, um, because they have, you have two different types of workers and they perform things slightly differently. So we we're like, well, what if they just had numbers and were multiplicative. So, you know, you needed the bigger ones to get the better research things, but they also just gave you more research because we, um, when I design and stuff, we always just focus on interesting decisions too. And in that phase, yeah. even though they're very small decisions, we wanted them to be interesting, um, you know, with the blocking and 
the um, you know taking the uh, dinosaur recipes, things like that. We still wanted there to be you know placing three workers isn't a lot, and that phase goes by quickly. But we wanted players to feel clever while they were doing it. For sure. Yeah, and then um, what was the other phase? Sorry. That you're oh asking yeah, about. Uh, the attractions and the hooligans trying to sneak oh. in. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that actually was way more complex at first, and that was a thing um, that we um, cut way down. There actually were hooligans and three different colors of oh, sure. um, people, and they all like different things. Like um, one one type of patron liked to go to uh, dinosaurs, one type liked to go to rides, and one type was there for food, and one type was there for shopping. So there were five types of things all together and you were pulling them out and trying to match all of them up and again that was another thing that was yeah just too much cognitively and too much of a puzzle and it felt bad having a bunch of people who couldn't do stuff so when we cut it down to just the regular um, attendees and the hooligans um, we because we wanted the hooligans to feel like the kids that you know sneak in in Jurassic Park um, and that's why that's why they don't get killed first um, because a lot of people are like well the hooligans should take the brunt of the attack but they don't ever in the movies mm-hmm. like those, those <laughs> kids are the ones that last and then how did you work to balance out the threat levels security excitement just like how did you decide on those elements and how did you balance them because balancing is my least favorite part I think of game design <laughs> <laughs> um, it's weirdly one of my favorites because it's experientially focused as I am I love the math portion of it. And we actually had like a, a spreadsheet and I, and there's a write up I did on BGG at one point talking about the math behind the dinosaurs, because uh, there were some people on there telling us that with the expansion, like some of the dinosaurs are broken. And they were also saying that the, um, uh, the small carnivores are broken as well. Cause there's three types of dinosaurs in the game. There's herbivores, small carnivores and large carnivores. And they're like, well, there's no reason to ever buy the small carnivores. So there's a really in detail write up about the math behind it. And the thing they sensed was kind of right. And I always start with very solid math. And it's we just make an equation and make the two sides balance. And in that, you know, it's the cost of the dinosaur, the victory points, the threat that it generates, the excitement it generates you have all these levers and you just figure out values for everything, you know, um, and rate them in power. And then you just make the two sides match. Um, it's how I usually approach balance, but, um, I have a term that I really like, and it's fun balanced. Um, because a lot of times, like when they were perfectly balanced, we found that nobody ever bought the small carnivores. So we had to like kick the math a little bit on those and mm-hmm. take them off from the perfectly balanced and push them to the edges of that. Um, and then they became more attractive for people to buy. See, I have only once made a game where it was completely balanced and then that became the problem was it was too balanced. So I get that. <laughs> oh yeah. man, I wish my brain worked like that with all the math. I, I really like it. I actually, most of my design now is done in spreadsheets before, well, I start out by just scribbling on paper most of the time and doing very loose designs. And then once we have the, the kind of core 
experience there. Everything else is done in a giant spreadsheet and attempt to balance it as much as we can. But I also, I use tools that just, you know, take everything from the spreadsheet, data merge it, and make cards really fast. So spreadsheets also help with that. Same. Maybe not on a spreadsheet, though, is uh, the list of publishers that you were trying to put uh, Dinosaur Island in front of. Uh, John, so could you expound a little bit on, uh, first, you know, you had pitched it to Zev, uh, and then mm-hmm. the kind of journey from there, uh, after a year and a half or so of development, uh, kind of how you interacted with the convention circuit or any kinds of uh, pitching events that you may have attended. Yeah, that one, um, I think I pitched for almost a year. Um, it saw quite a few publishers. Sure. Um, I, we had an existing, well, I had an existing relationship with Pandasaurus because they had signed Wasteland, uh, Wasteland Express Delivery Service. Um, and that was coming out and getting a good response, so... I had a good foot in the door with them to show them Dinosaur Island, but um, I had brought it to Unpub, Origins, Genton, you know, basically everything throughout the year, pitching it to, um, I think I showed it to Bennett Floodgate, you know, I showed it to Zev, pretty much any publisher that would, you know, give me the time of day, you know how it is, you're out there doing the hustle, oh, and if sure. a publisher will sit down with them, with you, you, you know, show them the ones you're most excited about, and that's, that's when I was really stoked about once, um, you know, Zev really broke it down and gave us, you know, that piece of advice and some other really good, um, pieces of advice. You know, we went back, we took all that, reevaluated, trimmed the game way back down and then started pitching it again. And then I think right after that, we maybe showed it to like two other publishers and then, um, Pandasaurus and they loved it and scooped it right up. Makes sense. I mean, Pandasaurus, it's got the dinosaur in the name. And now it's like <laughs> good chunk of their games have a dino in it. So it seemed like a match yeah. made in heaven. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's an awesome relationship. They're great to work with. That's amazing. And did you guys have any uh, input on the art style that was chosen for the game? Um, Not a little bit. We had some discussions early on and Quan Chai's name came up because uh, – a, they're a good friend of mine, and B, I, I love their work. So, really, he's the first person that I suggest to every single publisher when, whenever I have a game. Um, I'm like, yes, let's do that. And they kind of had the concept for making it look neon and retro like it does. So cool, because I feel like that's how people recognize it. Like, everyone knows that retro look and thinks Dinosaur Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was so excited by it because I, you know, I grew up in the 90s and I really loved that look. Um, so seeing it just come to life and the, you know, the cover with Quanchai's art in the like arcade 80s computer generated background it was just perfect. Yeah, it absolutely fits. And uh, I mean, again, you know, we're seeing uh, the 80s come back. So, John, like, I just got to hand it to you one more time. You are ahead <laughs> of <laughs> all of it. Um, just one more reflection or retrospective uh, looking backwards. So how long would you say it was for the inception of the game idea to the publication of the game idea. Uh, you and Brian uh, saw that billboard and then, um, you know, development and pitching around a little bit. Um, is that maybe four years? Not that long. Um, 
Maybe three and a half, I would say. It was it was a little bit faster once uh, Panasaurus picked it up. It was pretty cool. fast wrapped on their end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just fit into a really good slot where they had, you know, a Kickstarter opening. Um, things came together with Quanchai doing the art and um, Peter doing the graphic design. Um, and we, you know, we had done so much playtesting with it that, you know, development was relatively easy. Um, so yeah, probably about three and a half years from when Brian and I started on it to when it came out and delivered to Kickstarter backers. That's perfect. And this is a random question, but a lot of people have played this game and there's a lot of different ways to play it. Do you have a favorite strategy on how to play? I really play games weird now i don't really play them to win i always play them to explore the systems and and even on my own games i like to you know see if i can break things but i like to run a very reckless park with way too much excitement and dangerous dinosaurs and people dying all the time that sounds so fun (laughs) yeah yeah but i do i love the breadth of strategy in it and the you know the fact that people can try to play however they want it yeah, the open sandbox is always a really cool thing for empowering the players, yeah, to just try out whatever strategies and, uh, I mean, even just collect their own dinosaurs, or like their favorite dinosaurs, excuse me, so I think that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the expansion, Totally Liquid, you got to include a few more dinosaurs and some such. Uh, John, like, when did the conversation maybe come up about having an expansion for Dinosaur Island? Uh, was that maybe spurred on by the uh, publisher Pandasaurus, or was that maybe a, a you decision um when the first kid started did pretty well i think the first kid started did just over half a million um and we delivered it and it was getting um you know really good reviews we had the conversation you know about what could we do with an expansion and um brian wasn't quite as available um at the time so you know, I worked really close with Ian Moss. You know, I had um, kind of, he was working in the office with me. So I talked to Brian. I said, hey, do you mind if uh, Ian and I kind of start on the expansion, come up with, you know, all these ideas, and then we can bring them back to you, you know, work with you on, you know, refining them. And, you know, you, you could work at whatever capacity he wanted because of things going on at the time. So um, you know, we came back to Pandasaurus with the ideas for the expansion. They really liked the idea of it being modular and then gave us the go ahead to, you know, start working on it. And then that was kind of the first, um, the first project with Pandasaurus where I led the like mass play testing myself as their developer. Um, and we really put it through the ringer, you know, making sure that the, the balance of the experience was really good. Yeah. That's so awesome because I know how I met you in the industry was by pitching to you as you were the game scouter developer. And just for anyone listening, I want to repeat something that I've said basically in every interview I've been on. John, and I don't know if you know that I talk about you. Yeah, but you're going to know now. But basically, I remember showing up and I don't remember if it was PAX Unplugged or Origins or what it was, but it was like at six o'clock and I was like, wow, I bet you're so happy I'm your last person of the day that you're pitching to or whatever. And you just went like, oh, you're not like I have people booked up until the night. And I'm just like, why? And the way you explained that you wanted to give everyone an equal opportunity, people who that maybe couldn't afford to go to the convention 
who maybe had to like work their nine to five job and then was going to come later. Like you just made it sound so great how you wanted game design to be more accessible. You wanted to find those diamonds in the rough that maybe couldn't make it during those like normal times. I mean, you could have been out drinking or like meeting up with other industry folks, but instead you were like looking for those perfect games. And that has stuck with me. And I just wanted to let you know that I do talk about you. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much. That makes me really happy. Um, yeah, so it was Origins the first time you pitched to me, and then you pitched to me again at Patch U that year. Look at that. Um, you remember me. Oh, that makes me so happy. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I really liked um, what you were doing. I, I think the games weren't quite a right fit for Pandasaurus, but I thought that you know the concepts were really strong. On, I think you showed me two games the first time and maybe one the second. <laughs> Um, one like was a, a driving game, I believe, or like a card game. Yes. Oh, you would like yeah. where Curbside has gone. It is oh. doing some very interesting things now that I've not seen in other games. So, <laughs> oh, that's good. That turns out as good as I want it to. Um, but yeah, that's that's super important to me. And Pandasaurus was like, you can't do this, and I'm like, why don't I? I could go and have fun, but I much rather like have meetings and see these games that nobody else has seen. And that's, you know, we, we got some really, really good games that they have coming out now um, because of it, because I think, you know, casting that wide net is very important. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have to volunteer at the booth or, you know, they're, they don't necessarily have the means to you know, have somebody take care of their kids so they can come there during the day. So when you only look at games from 11 to 3, you're just going to see like a really small section of people. And I, I think you, you have to do better. I completely agree. And I was one of the people that worked at booths in order to afford to go to any of those conventions at the time. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even just money. It's also vacation time. It's hard to go on the convention circuit. And I feel like at least one good thing that came from COVID was... We're getting a lot of new voices that probably wouldn't have been heard had we not mm-hmm. had to do some of these online pitching sessions or whatever they're doing, the speed pitching events. Yeah, I think it's made a, a lot of really good connections between people that normally wouldn't get that opportunity. And I really hope we think of ways to continue it and continue these conversations after things you know, go back to closer to normal. Whew. So you did mention maybe that uh, Dinosaur Island might be an evergreen. Uh, now that it's published, do you know like what else is maybe coming for it? Uh, like the game is doing well, still selling, uh, and people are kind of continuing to play it. Uh, but with all these kinds of new titles and things, it seems like it's here to stay. Uh, maybe a little bit longer than the dinosaurs even. <laughs> I, I can only hope so. Um I don't think we have much more in terms of things for Dinosaur Island to explore because there's – I feel like we really added the things that I that we wanted to add with the expansion. Um, but, I mean, Brian's got uh, – Brian and a couple other our friends, um, you know, did Dinosaur World. They did the Roaring Right game, which is really good. Um it's just such a such a fun take on, um, you know, park building with a roll and write, um, you know, mechanic. So hopefully they'll see more stuff in that, um, you know, the the dinosaur island universe, I guess. But that's so cool. I was going to ask, 
why is it that you worked on the Dinosaur Island and Totally Liquid, but not the Roar and Riot or World? Was there a decision there? Because I know a lot of times with contracts, you do get first dibs at expansions or other things within the universe. Would you mind talking about a little of that? Um, yeah, so definitely I always own my contracts that, you know, I have right of first refusal for um, expansion material. Um, this was very much like um, when Ian and I were working on the expansion. There was a conversation that we had. Um, I had a lot of stuff going on at the time. Um, you know, so Brian asked if it'd be all right if he worked with Dave and Marissa, which are two of our friends that are local to him. Um, you know, I said, by all means, yeah, go ahead and, and dig into it and um, you know, see what you can come up with. So they kind of, you know, showed it to me throughout the process and, you know, took my feedback and, um, you know, I got to help, you know, drive it a little bit ago, but, or, you know, a little bit throughout the process. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't driven by the publisher. It was totally between us, how we split it up and, you know, how we would divvy up royalties because it is based on the, you know, the, the IP of the game and um, things like that. Very cool. Yeah, I'm always interested to see how that works, especially because there's some games like I look at Catan. I'm like, oh, my God, how many different versions can you make? And does the <laughs> same designer have the bandwidth to make all of them? Yeah, we really had a lot of discussions about not over diluting the, the pool with Dinosaur Island and not going back to the well too much. Um, does it can exhaust, um, you exhaust a game and exhaust fans if there's too much content for it. Yeah, I could see that. Whew. So what a talk we've had, John. Looking back with uh, Dinosaur Island, everything about it, could you name one favorite memory and one maybe not so favorite memory just uh, with the journey of this design, whether it was, um, you know, the playtesting period or checking it out? Uh, at conventions and, and seeing people play. I know that we had met at uh, Geekway to the West uh, in mm-hmm. St. Louis and just kind of, if there's ever a, a fun moment where, you know, you're walking past your own game being played by strangers and they're about to look something up in the rule book and you just happen to, oh yeah, no, it's like this. And uh, any, <laughs> any fun moments like that for you? I, I am always a fan of that. I try not to be too creepy about it. Um, and, and my friends will kind of tease me because especially if we're at a convention and like someone is playing one of my games like at a table next to us, they're like, you should go over and talk to them. And I'm like, I, I, I don't think they want that and I don't know if I want that. Like they're having a good time. Yeah. Um, but, but I do, if I ever see anybody like struggling with the rule book, I'll be like, hey, do you have any questions about this game? And I, I don't really mention who I am. I just, you know, try to answer their questions and, you know, ask them you know, what they think about it and stuff and just kind of, you know, creep a little bit. Um, probably one of my, probably one of my favorite and um, simultaneously worst memories oh my is, um, it's it's not really horrible. It, it, it's really interesting is at um, Gen Con, before the game delivered, you know, we had like a, you know, a really expensive pre-production copy of it there and somebody stole it from the demo hall whoa oh that's so messed up yeah so like i think like our demoer had walked away to the bathroom and by the time the time they came back somebody had packed up the game and stolen it holy cow um 
Yeah, and we saw it on eBay like three weeks later selling for like a huge amount of money because the game wasn't out yet. Um, and yeah, we tried to track them down, but never. Um, oh wow! Never were able to. Yeah. Oh. That cool. sucks. Like what? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was. It was really funny. There was a, a couple news write ups about it. I think like um, one of the one of the board game news sites did a thing about it. Um, but yeah, it was it was weird, and uh, it was great that somebody wanted it so bad that they. You know, stole it, but also don't. Well, steal then they stuff. tried to sell it. Come on, <laughs> it wasn't even for their own enjoyment. It was just to make money. Yeah, we we didn't get anywhere tracking it down. They had like sold it to their local game store or something, and then the game store was, it was it was weird. And the, I mean, the police were like, "Whatever, it's a board game. We don't care." Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, I mean, that sounds about right. <laughs> it's so funny. And so you would say that's your favorite and least favorite. You don't have any other ones. Uh, I mean, the, there's so many great memories of just like the the whole process. Like I love playtesting in person. I love demoing the games and you know getting to meet you know people who it really um, you know brings joy to. Like that's that's the main reason I do this is because I love making people happy and and that's probably my favorite part is just you know getting to meet people who really dig the game and you know, who played all the time with their kids or their, you know, whoever, their friends. And that, I, that's probably my favorite memory. It's just any time I get to meet somebody who really likes the game. That's so nice. And then for any designer out there, do you have any advice on just like how to get in the industry, how to make a great game, how to make essentially an evergreen or just keep figuring out the zeitgeist and make that perfect game? Like we want all the advice, honestly, you are willing to give. Boy, um, I, there's no formula, but probably the, one of the best pieces of advice, I think, um, maybe Chris O'Neill from ninth level games was the one that I heard say this originally. Um, there's three ways to be successful, um, at a creative endeavor. Um, one is to be the first to do something, which is really hard in our industry. It's hard to do something really original. You know, the second is to be the best to do something. So you make the best game that you possibly can. And the third is be the weirdest. And I think, you know, that one's probably my favorite way to do it is to subvert people's expectations and give them something a little bit different than what they expected. But I think, you know, try to focus on those three aspects. Like, how can I be, how can I make this the best game that I want? And the best game for me, like, I always, I'm always happy to play my games after they come out, which a lot of designers aren't because I designed the exact game I wanted. And I think that's important. Like, don't, don't focus on making a product that's going to sell. Focus on making a game that you're going to want to play a hundred times and it will resonate with people um, because because it's good and because you, you like it. I think that's great advice. Also, I mean, don't be a sellout. <laughs> I mean, or yeah. sell out a little bit. If you're new, it's okay to sell out a little bit. I know I did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fine. Like, if you if you want to run it like a business, you can. Um, and but sometimes I can tell when I play a game, like this game doesn't have a lot of heart, and it doesn't, and it suffers for it. 
but I think there are designers who can certainly just, you know, crank things out and do a good job with it. So, you know, I don't want to put them down and it doesn't lessen what they do. How many games do you think you work on at a time, prototype or in development? Um, in the last year, it's been about like two at a time. But at my peak before I started with Pandasaurus and switched my focus to development, I think I was designing around 15 to 20 games simultaneously. Um, yeah. And then pitching probably 10 more that were at that point that they were ready to pitch. Whew. Yeah, my, my goal was to sign close to 10 games a year so that five would make it to market and one of them would hopefully do well was my kind of five-year plan. That sounds like some good odds. That's ambitious and amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, because, you know, if, if you're only doing one or two games at a time, like, it's the chance of it really catching on is pretty low. So you need to kind of you know, spread it out a little bit. Oh, yeah, no. Ben knows that at most of our playtests, I would bring a brand new design almost every single time and subject our group to it. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. keeps it new, keeps it fresh. I was I was very lucky in that we built a really good local design group that met every week. And, you know, I had some office space, so I was able to, you know, constantly bring new games and, and co-designing helps that a lot too. Um, you know, having co-designers that you can share the work with, with, with lets you work on a lot more things all at once. And what makes a good co-designer for you? Um, it's, it's really like any relationship. It's, it's all about communication and understanding and, you know, having your goals aligned and our goal, you know, my, with my co-designers, our goals are always to, you know, try to make the best game possible. So it's easy to get that in line, but, you know, open communication, talking about expectations, um, and then just the work of, you know, being in a relationship with somebody, even if it's a work one, um, and, you know, finding people that are willing to put in the same amount of work as you are in the same passion. Well, thank you for strengthening this relationship with us, John. Figure uh, what the least that we could do for you is allow you to talk a little bit, maybe about some upcoming projects that we can look forward to uh, in the next couple of months from you, uh, if, if you care to share. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so the Snallygaster situation, which is a Kids on Bites board game that we did with Renegade Games, um, just started delivering in the last few weeks. So um, please check that out. It's a really fun um cooperative monster kids and monster game where you're trying to evade the monster and find your friend who's been um captured um coming to kidstarter around gen con this year will be collab a game that i co-designed with uh john meatling from portal dragon uh who'll also be publishing it and that's um what we're calling a um collaborative worker placement game it's not cooperative um you are down on your luck mad scientists that can't afford their own lab, so you use a co-working space. So oh, my God. No. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, and you, you send your minions out to the board, um, but where you place your minions benefits everybody, so it's collaborative. You're, you're, you're constantly... We're also calling it a take this game instead of take that, because you're just giving the other Aww. players stuff all the time. I like that. 
Yeah, and the the art's fantastic. Um, he found he found a really um, super artist that hadn't done board game work before, and she's her art is just incredible. Um, and it's going to have like beautiful minis. It has this really cool thing where your minions um, that you send out to work. Uh, you put dice and they kind of like hold them above their heads or in a sack over their shoulders. Uh, and each player yes. has. Oh, I've been waiting for that. Yep. Yeah. Um. So like one has like a robot with like clampy hands that hold the dice and one's like a blob where the dice is like stuck into it. And then there's like an Igor with a sack over his shoulder that the die goes into. Um, it's just super table present, super fun game. Um, so I'm excited. That'll be on Kickstarter right around Gen Con, and we'll be running events for it there as well. Oh, very cool. So you'll be at Gen Con this year? Um, I will not. I'm still not comfortable with it. Um, with all the COVID things and the way that Indiana's handling it, handling it and the Delta variant. Um, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, I look forward to maybe seeing that game at Gen Con since I will be there then. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's... I, I was really on the fence. I really wanted to, but... We have plenty more conventions coming our way, let's be honest. They're not going away. Yeah, I'm hoping maybe Patchy, that one's a little bit smaller, and we'll see how Philadelphia handles things, um, if it happens. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, John, for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unbox Inspiration Publication. Again, episode 20, Dinosaur Island. Uh, you've been an absolute joy. Oh, well, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of yeah, course, thanks. of course. It's the least we could do. I, maybe? Yeah. Some, that, oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, for anyone looking to find you, maybe make some contact. Uh, if you're comfortable with it, yeah. Where? What outlets could you be reached through? Um, I'm really pretty open to people getting a hold of me, either uh, via Facebook or Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at John Gilmore, J-O-N-G-I-L-M-O-U-R. Easy peasy. And I'll just go ahead and yep, say that I am also on Facebook as Ben Moy, B-E-N-M-O-Y. Uh, not that I'm anywhere close to John's level, but you can reach out to me too if you want to, dear listener. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I'm the other host, Danielle Reynolds, and you can reach me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group or Twitter at Creative DMR or Instagram at Token Gamer. And that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks, everyone. And uh, have a dynamite week. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.